The U.S. presidential election is finally over, but people are still pretty anxious. That's right. That's right, because Trump has refused to concede. And people are nervous in Taiwan for a different reason. I'm Natalie So, and I'm Andrew Ryan. Let's first check out the stories on our radar. A team from the U.S. Marine Raiders Regiment is in Taiwan to help boost the combat readiness of local troops. The Taiwan and U.S. military hold annual joint exercises, but this is the first time since 1979 that Taiwan has acknowledged the presence of U.S. Marines. The Taiwan-U.S. Economic Prosperity Partnership Dialogue is set to begin on November 20th, with a delegation led by U.S. Undersecretary of State Keith Kroc. Discussions will include a broad range of topics, including the consolidation of supply chains, 5G security, and semiconductors. President Tsai Ing-wen has chosen TSMC founder Morris Zhang to represent her at this year's APEC summit. This will be Zhang's third time as Taiwan's envoy to APEC. Digital Minister Audrey Tong will also be attending the APEC CEO dialogues. At the World Health Assembly this week, the U.S., Japan, and several of Taiwan's diplomatic allies have asked the WHO to include Taiwan in the World Health Assembly. The U.S. held up Taiwan as a role model in the fight against COVID-19 that the whole world could learn from. And finally, what the heck is that? A pair of divers came across a massive underwater surprise off Pingdong County, an oceanic manta ray bigger than a car. Experts believe the creature, which is two by three meters in size, may have drawn near the coast in order to eat floating marine life. One of the longest U.S. presidential elections in history has finally wrapped up, and how has the world responded? Well, it's been pretty mixed because Trump is disputing the election. That's right. So far, a lot of U.S. allies have sent congratulatory messages. Also, India, Turkey, Saudi Arabia. But some other major countries are still waiting. China and Mexico, which Trump has been hostile to, but also leaders that Trump has been closer to, like、uh, leaders from Brazil, North Korea, and Russia. So, what about Taiwan? Well, Taiwan is in the yes column. Very early on, President Tsai sent out a tweet congratulating him. It was a retweet of his congratulations to her when she won her election in January of this year. Now, half an hour later, the main opposition Guomindang or KMT they also tweeted their congratulations to Biden. American people once again show the world how to make democracy work. I'm not so sure about that, right? I mean, not this time around. It doesn't seem to be going too well. So, do you think they're being sarcastic? I kind of feel like they are, but a little bit of a jab. I don't know. Yeah, hard to say. <laughs> Now, what else is interesting is that the local media has also been a little bit anxious about a Biden win. A storm media column refers to Taiwan as an anxious 51st state. From the Liberty Times, which is a pro-ruling party newspaper, netizens worry Biden will be China-friendly, but the MAC chairman says give him the benefit of the doubt. And from the more pro-opposition China Times, will a Biden win be terrible for Taiwan? So something else that's very interesting is that a lot of the green-leaning TV news stations have been talking about these election conspiracy theories about you know election fraud, things like that, which is very different from what the. DPP administration is is what their take is. That is interesting. I think they might want Trump to win. Yeah. Maybe they're afraid of Biden or they're insecure. They like Trump、Biden. because he's very pro. It seems to be very anti-China, right? And they right. perceive that as being pro-Taiwan. 
Well, I did talk with Brian Hugh. He's a founding editor at New Bloom Magazine, which is a political magazine here in Taiwan, about Taiwan's response to Biden's win. Compared to other nations, there has been actually concern about a Biden presidency. Trump is perceived as having strengthened the U.S.-Taiwan relation. Uh, this has occurred through arms deals to Taiwan, uh, high-level diplomatic visits by individuals such as Keith Kroc and Alex Azar, and and uh, the Trump administration is seen as breaking historical precedent in many ways. That this has been the highest point in U.S.-Taiwan relations since 1979, some would claim. Uh, this began with the Trump typhoon call shortly after Trump was elected. Uh, he, it was before he actually took office. He was then sole president-elect. And what's interesting is that though there were a lot of concerns about Trump taking office and what the effects on the U.S.-Taiwan relationship would be, once Trump was president and began strengthening the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, this verdict on Trump reversed itself. And now mm. we see four years later there's such concern then about that he is no longer president. Can you tell us how Taiwan's media has been portraying Trump versus Biden and how they've been reacting to uh, this election? Um, yeah, so it's actually very interesting because I think particularly Taiwanese media, Chinese language media, has been an amplifying force for pro-Trump news. And I think that because uh, Taiwanese are not getting the full brunt of the U.S. news cycle, it, the news reporting can be selective. So then things that pick Trump in a positive light, that spin him as doing actions to benefit Taiwan, are amplified. This news is amplified. Whereas negative press about Biden, the view that he is soft on China or even connected to China or backed by China, uh, this kind of news gets amplified. And I think this is... is uh, this, another issue is poor fact-checking practices in Taiwanese media. Uh, but then there's also these biases which are clearly present, and that leads to distorted perceptions, I think, of American politics. So do you think that much of the public has idealized Trump? I think so, absolutely. Because there are points at which Trump has considered, um, it seems, even indicated publicly that he would be willing to use Taiwan or Hong Kong as a bargaining chip in a trade deal with China. So he said that in public comments uh, right. in John Bolton's book, it suggested that there was one point at which Trump did actually just point to his desk and say, Taiwan is the size of a pen compared to China's economy, which is the size of a desk. And so that's a sign of his priorities. What do you think is going to happen with Biden and Taiwan? It's, it's a good question. I think there is. <laughs> so I think it is right to actually be uh, cautious. However, mm -hmm. I think this kind of uh, this premature assessment of Biden as necessarily reversing the gains in the past four years, necessarily uh, having a weaker China policy are, are quite premature. A lot will have to depend on who is appointed to his administration, uh, what policies that he announces. Um, also, just the fact that within the Senate and the uh, House of Representatives, there is still strong Republican presence. Uh, Biden himself has also indicated that he might be willing to take on Republicans in his administration as a sign of bipartisanship. So that's another factor I think people have not paid enough attention to. Do you see um, in the Taiwan media, you know, the two parties, the Kuomintang and the DPP, do they have a preference for um, parties or, uh, you know, biases towards Biden and Trump? What do you see happening in the media? It's one of those interesting things, actually, because both parties will deny that they have biases. They will deny that they have special relations with one party or stronger relations with one party versus another. However, historically, I think that is, is actually the case. In terms of lobbying organizations in the U.S., in terms of ties with American politicians, there is this favoritism towards Republicans. Um, that's particularly true with the Tsai administration, for example, despite being a progressive administration. Uh, for example, during Tsai's inauguration for re-election, the video that was broadcast, the uh, Republican politicians, their congratulations to Tsai was emphasized, whereas for Democratic politicians, this was shortened or cut out. And that is clear favoritism. And I think that this is a matter of optics in which the Tsai administration could really do much better on.
they cut out some of the Democrats? Um, or just shorten the time. And oh. so the, the Republicans were just emphasized as these are the American politicians that support Taiwan, whereas the Democrats were disregarded. And that seemed like a very bad move, particularly because of the possibility of a Democratic presidential administration coming in. And so though both, party will, both parties, DPP or KMT, will claim they're bipartisan, when one actually looks at their actions, there is this clear favoritism. And I think that has not gone unnoticed. So um, how do you think it will be for Tsai to work with the Democrat um, administration? What challenges would he foresee? So this is one of those interesting things, too, that there's a confluence of uh, the Democratic Progressive Party and a Democratic administration. And so there are challenges there, too, because we just had a Republican administration. And just looking at the history of which parties and president during which party in Taiwan is, is ruling, uh, it's, it's kind of rare for this combination to occur. And so then I think that there will be challenges. I think that Tsai really does need to outreach to Democrats to build stronger ties with them. Um, and not just, you know, older traditional politicians, but also younger, more progressive politicians, the way she's outreached to those kind of politicians in Taiwan. And I think that's, that's something I'd like to see, but it's a question. That was actually a very fascinating interview. Uh, if you'd like to see the whole interview, be sure to check it out. It's on YouTube and Facebook. When it comes to religion, Taiwan is home to many. You have Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and many other minor religions. The most prominently featured religion in Taiwan is probably the local version of Taoism. Taiwan Taoism has its gods, its places of worship, and its various holidays. Fun fact! When Foxconn founder Terry Guo announced his run for president, he said he was doing so because the sea goddess Mazu asked him in a dream to run. Now, Mazu is kind of like the big cheese in Taiwan's religion, so it's good practice to do what she says. Like any other faith, Taiwan's folk religion involves prayer. You pray when you want to ask the gods for help, and you pray when you want to say hi to your ancestors. And if you're me, you pray because you don't want to fail university. Don't tell my school that. Usually, people will make offerings by laying food items out on a table and burning incense. On some occasions, people will burn ghost money and help stimulate heaven's economy. But what happens if you really wanted something? Like, what if you needed some serious spiritual support for a certain task? Do you just burn as much ghost money as you can? That's certainly one option, but when the stakes are high, people will sacrifice their own behavior. What do I mean? People will pray for a wish and they'll promise to do something in return if the wish comes true. It's kind of like putting up collateral to the gods. You have to be careful though, because if your wish comes true, then you have to follow through with your promise. So it's best not to get too crazy. If you don't stick to your word, you'll get stuck on a religious blacklist. Uh-oh! Most commonly, people will give up meat for certain periods of time. Wait, if you're a vegetarian, does that mean you just straight up give up food then? One lady is going viral on social media because of a bargain she made with Mazu. Miss Lu, seen dancing here in a dinosaur costume, followed a Mazu pilgrimage with a procession for two days. Why? Because she asked Mazu to help her pass a test. In return, she promised to help draw attention to the goddess. Draw attention, as in don a dinosaur costume, follow the procession, and dance outside of temples. From the footage, I'm sure you can tell how Lou fared on the test. Whether or not the dinosaur costume was part of the original bargain, I don't know. I can't imagine thinking that far ahead when you're preparing for a test, but maybe Lou is one of those big picture people. The online response to Lou's escapade was rather positive. Many people complimented her for her religious commitment, while others said they found Lou to be a very sincere person. More videos of Lou's dancing surfaced online with someone saying that she should do the dance every year. Dancing in dinosaur costumes? Now that is a religion I can get behind.
Today's brain game is a game that we are calling "What's That in My Lunchbox?" Now, lunchboxes we also call them biantang or bento. These are beloved part of any train trip in Taiwan. Now, I'm assuming that both of you have had a train lunchbox before. I think so. Yeah. I yes. Have. Okay. I have. So today we're going to do something very interesting. Now, this morning I went to the Taipei train station, Taipei Main. And I went to buy bento boxes for Nally and Leslie. There was a line when I arrived.、Uh, when I got to the counter, there were all kinds of different flavors of lunch boxes, but surprisingly, many were sold out. Now I did find two of the same kind of bento. I brought them back for Leslie and Nally to sample. Ooh! Yay! No, last time I sampled. <laughs> Didn't turn out too well for me. You gotta trust the train、uh, company, though. Oh, high speed. Okay. High speed. Oh. Now don't touch it yet.、Ooh. As you may guess, we are gonna do a taste test, and you're gonna sample the things and try to identify what's in the box. But I'm not gonna have you close your eyes. I'm not gonna give you face masks because I know you both have makeup on. Okay. I have. For Natalie. Oh wow! Oh <laughs> man, look at that. And for Leslie, how long did these take you? <laughs> oh, oh no! Wow. There、cool. we go. <laughs> All right. Hey, this is very cool. Sensory deprivation. So now we have put 60 seconds on the clock, and when it starts, not yet. Hold on. <laughs> I want you to open up your bento box, and I want you to start sampling the things inside. See if you can guess. You need to work together to guess the six ingredients inside your、oh. box. Are you ready? Okay. Go. Okay. Does rice so count? So rice,、though? yeah. Rice counts. Rice counts. <laughs>、okay. So we、That's、have to、one. eat it. Egg. <laughs>、uh, I'm so worried that I'm just gonna miss my. I'm gonna like mess up my. Drop the, drop it on the floor. Come on, okay. Leslie, you're a little behind there. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm so worried that I、okay. hold it up Dude, to your、uh, mouth. Pork chop. Pork chop. That's right. You've got two. I.、Mm-hmm. Oh, there's the rice. No,、mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, some kind of vegetable. Some kind of vegetable. Yep, doing good. Thirty seconds that, to go.、Um, cabbage. Cabbage. That's right. Natalie is killing it. <laughs> bean sprout. Not bean sprouts. Is it? I feel like using my hands. <laughs> is this like a、uh, wood fungus, wood ear. Yes. Okay. Good. Four. Is this、Woodier. an egg? Am、uh, I trying to pick up an egg right now? You might be. I can't. Can I use my hands? <laughs> yes, you can use your hands if you、shop. if you want to eat your bento box with your hands. <laughs> yeah, it's an egg. Egg. <laughs> That's right. Nelly's got number five. <laughs> is it um dry tofu? <laughs> dry tofu. You got skin tofu, and time is up. You can take your glasses off. You guys did Yay, a wonderful job. That was fun. Look at it; it's all pork chop on the top. Wow! Like, look at that. Yummy, the, yummy. That is the hard part because the、that's、pork chop、so、is、hard. covering everything. Okay. Well, I figured there's an egg, a really nice egg in there. Lutan, braised egg, right? The lunchbox that I wanted to get for you guys was a really cool one that has many different things in it, but it was totally sold out. I was super surprised. Um, but did you like the one that you did get? Yes, we did. This is a classic. So like、nice. this is the classic you, pork、Andrew. chop. Yeah, you're、for、welcome.、Dinner. Thank you for lunch. I'm li- I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. <laughs> Now I have to tell you the reason why I wanted to play this game today is because this weekend they're having the TRA, the Taiwan Rail Authority, is having the Formosa Railway Bento Festival. That means you can try many different types、oh, of lunch boxes. Um, why don't we have a look at that video? Those who have traveled Taiwan's railways before are likely familiar with the Taiwan Railways Administration's special railway meals, a selection of mains and sides artfully served with a generous helping of Taiwanese rice. 
Taiwanese people are enthusiastic about these railway meals. For many, their smell conjures up nostalgia and memories of journeys past. And so it is that each year, the Taiwan Railways Administration holds a festival dedicated to their railway meal sets. For four days beginning November 13th, the 2020 edition of the festival will see a showcase of special edition sets, including sets featuring regional specialties and unusual ingredients, such as the citrusy pomelo fruit. Fans of more conventional railway fare will also be pleased. The festival will feature a recreation of a classic railway meal set once served during the 1970s. The event is sure to please both old-time rail aficionados looking to relive the meals of yesteryear and those looking for new twists on old themes. And our final question of the day, if you could have anything inside your bento box, your bindang, your lunchbox... What would it be, Leslie? Not ice cream. <laughs> ice cream, because any last time we had ice cream, I ended up eating pork, which is a common component in bento boxes. This time, Andrew let us know that there was a bento component to this show, and I was just like, I hope there's no ice cream in this. There <laughs> wasn't. Your wish there came wasn't. true, right? <laughs> I would like some pate. Pate. Wow, you Wouldn't guys. That be yummy? Very good. I like that. I wouldn't mind some pate. I went in a decidedly different direction. If I could have anything in my bento box, it would be a Aww. cure for COVID-19. Wow. <laughs> well, here's hoping that you get all of those things in your bento box. Well, we hope you enjoyed this inside look at Taiwan this week. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, if you like our show, subscribe or leave a comment below. For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. The Overseas Community Affairs Council is encouraging overseas journalists to report on the contributions Taiwanese have made to the world so that the world can see Taiwan. The OCAC is launching the Chinese Language Journalism Award for Overseas Media. Journalists can compete for two awards, the Print and Digital Report Award and the Broadcast Report Award. Entries that showcase in-depth professional reporting have the chance to win $2,500 U.S. dollars. The deadline is November 30th. Go to www.ocac.gov.tw for details. RTI is conducting a survey. Visit our website to fill out the questionnaire or simply send us your answers to the following four questions. Question number one. What platform do you use to listen to RTI programs? You can write more than one, but list the most frequent one first. Question number two. Which RTI programs are your favorites? Write no more than three programs. Question number three. Out of a total of five stars, how many stars would you give RTI's English broadcasts overall? And question number four. What are your suggestions for RTI's English programs? Everybody who enters will have a chance to win a prize. Send your answers to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan, 11199. Or send it via email. Our email address is audience01 
at rti.org.tw. That's audience and the numbers 0 and 1 at rti.org.tw. Be sure to leave your name, gender, age, and nationality. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Before the U.S. election, Taiwan was found to be the only nation in Asia with people favoring Trump over Biden. So how has Taiwan responded to the election of Joe Biden? Well, with me today is the founding editor of New Bloom Magazine, a political magazine in Taiwan, Brian Hugh. Well, Brian, welcome to the show. And uh, <laughs> tell me, how, how do you think Taiwan has responded to the election of Joe Biden? Uh, that's right. And so uh, compared to other nations, there has been actually a concern about a Biden presidency. Trump is perceived as having strengthened the U.S.-Taiwan relation. Uh, this has occurred through arms deals to Taiwan, uh, high-level diplomatic visits by individuals such as Keith Kroc and Alex Azar. And, and uh, the Trump administration is seen as breaking historical precedent in many ways, that this has been the highest point in U.S.-Taiwan relations since 1979, some would claim. Uh, this began with the Trump typhoon call shortly after Trump was elected. Uh, he, it was before he actually took office. He was then still president-elect. And what's interesting is that though there were a lot of concerns about Trump taking office and what the effects on the U.S.-Taiwan relationship would be, once Trump was president and began strengthening the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, this verdict on Trump reversed itself. And now mm. we see, four years later, there's such concern then about that he is no longer president. So there's actually a lot of anxiety over the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, basically. Mm. And with this change of leadership, we don't know what's going to be happening. Do you think there is um, cause for concern over Biden? I think there's cause for concern with any American president, because it's hard to know how they will react and how what changes will happen under their administration. Um, but I think that what's interesting is now there's the belief that under a democratic presidency, mm. this could see a reversal of fortunes. Uh, Republicans are seen by many in Taiwan as more strongly supportive. And that occurs despite that legislation in support of Taiwan has been bipartisan, that arms deals occur under both Democratic and Republican presidential administrations. But Republicans are seen as stronger on China, tougher on China. And I think Trump's rhetoric made him very appealing to many Taiwanese that are anxious about China because of this. So um, can you tell us how Taiwan's media has been portraying Trump versus Biden and how they've been reacting to uh, this election? Um, yeah, so it's actually very interesting because I think particularly Taiwanese media, Chinese language media, has been an amplifying force for pro-Trump news. And I think that because uh, Taiwanese are not getting the full brunt of the U.S. news cycle, it, the news reporting can be selective. So then things that pick Trump in a positive light, that spin him as doing actions to benefit Taiwan, are amplified. This news is amplified. Whereas negative press about Biden, the view that he is soft on China or even connected to China or backed by China, uh, this kind of news gets amplified. And I think this is... is uh, this, another issue is poor fact-checking practices in Taiwanese media. Uh, but then there's also these biases which are clearly present, and that leads to distorted perceptions, I think, of American politics. So do you think that much of the public has idealized Trump? I think so, absolutely. Because there are points at which Trump has considered, um, it seems, even indicated publicly that he would be willing to use Taiwan or Hong Kong as a bargaining chip in a trade deal with China. So he said that in public comments uh, right. in John Bolton's book, it suggested that there was one point at which Trump did actually just point to his desk and say, Taiwan is the size of a pen compared to China's economy, which is the size of a desk. And so that's a sign of his priorities. Right. So actually, there is cause for anxiety over Trump as well. Mm -hmm. But he has been very good to Taiwan. And mm -hmm. we even see recently the 10th arms deal that he is you know, proposing for Taiwan. Do you think that this strong relationship will continue with a Biden presidency? 
It's a question because I think uh, it's anyone knows. Uh, however, I do think that structural factors will lead the U.S. and China into increasing tensions with each other. There might be a period of rapprochement, of a, a loosening of tensions. But overall, I think the fundamental outlook, geopolitically, geostrategically, economically, uh, socioeconomically, is it's still present. That there's this, still this tension. And so the question is that. Biden being、uh, strong on China does not necessarily mean being supportive of Taiwan. Taiwan could be left out of countermeasures against China, for example. So, what do you think is going to happen with Biden and Taiwan? It's it's a good question. I think there is. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think it is right to actually be、uh, cautious. However,、mm-hmm. I think this kind of、uh, this premature assessment of Biden as necessarily reversing the gains in the past four years, necessarily、uh, having a weaker China policy, are are quite premature. A lot will have to depend on who is appointed to his administration,、uh, what policies that he announces.、Um, also, just the fact that within the Senate and the、uh, House of Representatives, there is still strong Republican presence.、Uh, Biden himself has also indicated that he might be willing to take on Republicans in his administration as a sign of bipartisanship. So that's another factor I think people have not paid enough attention to. So the U.S. Congress seems to be a lot more supportive of Taiwan. I mean, they passed the Taiwan Travel Act, the Taipei Act, and、uh, do you think that this will also influence Biden and his policy towards Taiwan? Absolutely, because the president is not the only、uh, ruler, let's say, in America. And I think this is something that much Taiwanese assessments of America have missed out. The Trump administration is conflated with the Republicans that are in Congress, and so actions supportive of Taiwan from the legislature are accredited to Trump. But that is actually not necessarily the case, and so this this collapsing of distinctions.、Uh, even Trump and the Trump administration, there are differences. People under him have their own agendas, and it's different from what Trump himself says or does. So, do you see、um, in the Taiwan media, you know, the two parties, the Kuomintang and the DPP, do they have a preference for、um, parties or、uh, you know biases towards Biden and Trump? What do you see happening in the media? It's one of those interesting things, actually, because both parties will deny that they have biases. They will deny that they have special relations with one party or stronger relations with one party versus another. However, historically, I think that is, is actually the case in terms of lobbying organizations in the U.S. In terms of ties with American politicians, there is this favoritism towards Republicans.、Um, that's particularly true with the Tsai administration, for example. Despite being a progressive administration,、uh, for example, during Tsai's inauguration for re-election, the video does broadcast the、uh, Republican politicians there congratulate. To Tsai was emphasized, whereas for Democratic politicians, this was shortened or cut out, and that is clear favoritism. And I think that this is a matter of optics in which the Tsai administration could really do much better on. They cut out some of the Democrats,、um, or just shorten the time, and、oh. so the, the Republicans were just emphasized as these are the American politicians that support Taiwan, whereas the Democrats were disregarded. And that seemed like a very bad move, particularly because of the possibility of a Democratic presidential administration coming in. And so, though both party will, both parties, DPP or KMT, will claim. They're bipartisan. When one actually looks at their actions, there is this clear favoritism, and I think that has not gone unnoticed. So,、um, how do you think it will be for Tsai to work with the Democrat、um, administration? What challenges? What do you foresee? So, this is one of those interesting things too that there is a confluence of、uh, the Democratic Progressive Party and a Democratic administration, and so there are challenges there too because we just had a Republican administration, and just looking at the history of which parties and president during which party in Taiwan is is ruling,、uh, it's it's kind of rare for this combination to occur. And so then, I think that there will be challenges. I think that Tsai really does need to outreach to Democrats to build strong. Ties with them,、um, and not just you know older traditional politicians, but also younger, more progressive politicians. The way she's outreached to those kind of politicians in Taiwan, and I think that's that's something I like to see. But it's a question. What about the KMT? What is their relationship with and, and their media portrayal、mm-hmm. of the two parties in the U.S.?、Mm-hmm. 
That's right. So the KMT, interestingly enough, they have a struggle currently about whether to build stronger ties with the U.S. or not. Uh, the current chair, Johnny Chang, is in favor of seeking for the ROC to uh, regain recognition by the United States, whereas former chair and former president Ma ying has come out against this idea. And so I think this is a struggle within the party as well between the younger and the older generations on how to relate to the U.S. Um, and in that sense, the KMT has also claimed that it does not support any party, that it's supportive of both parties. But there's a question, uh, there's always been this question uh, in the past few years, does it actually want to build stronger ties with the U.S.? There's been proposals to create, to reestablish their office in D.C., and there's been back and forth on that idea. Will they actually follow through on that? That's still also up in the air. Well, what about um, the U.S. parties? Do you think that uh, Democrats and Republicans differ very greatly in the way they see Taiwan? I think it's uh, one of those things because it depends on rhetoric, and I think that Tsai really does stand to improve if she wants to be able to build parties. For Republicans, uh, some actually the older traditional Republicans still have this view of China that it goes back decades, dating back to it as quote-unquote free China. Um, even with John McCain when he was alive, some of his statements referring to Taiwan, those kind of that framework in which he referred to Taiwan seemed really outdated from the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think for Democrats then, there's this framing of Taiwan in terms of human rights. Democrats have historically been stronger on human human rights as a party. Uh, but then then I think there's also this kind of lacking awareness of Taiwan, um, of Taiwan as a progressive democracy that has accomplished all these things in the past few years. And I think that there's a kind of lack of awareness sometimes among some democratic politicians regarding Taiwan, whereas Republicans can be stronger or uh, have more things to say openly about foreign policy for America. So it does seem that they are a stronger supporter of Taiwan. And they initiate a lot of the bills in, in the mm. Congress as well. That's right. And so that's the paradox. Um, I, I, th- I don't know if I would label one party as particularly strong in support of Taiwan versus another. Both really have American interests in mind, I think, at the mm. end of the day. Uh, but these are bills are often initiated by Republicans. They are backed by some Democrats. And I think leading Democratic politicians sometimes do not really take statements on, on these issues. And I think that that's something that uh, the ball will increasingly be in the Democrats' camp to actually make firmer stances on Taiwan and also Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and Tibet uh, going forward, particularly with the Biden administration coming to power at a time in which U.S.-China tensions are, are at the highest they've been in decades. So um, Biden also came out with a, a statement in support of Taiwan uh, right before the election, saying mm-hmm. he wanted to deepen ties with Taiwan. He said it in the World Journal. And mm-hmm. What do you think of that statement? Does it mean anything? In, or is it just a very uh, general mm-hmm. kind of sign of support? It's quite interesting, too, because it's, it's a question. Um, that might be an attempt to appeal to certain voters, for example, in the United States, certain demographics. And the question uh, for Biden now is, was he just saying all those things about China to come off as strong on China, to outcompete with Trump on this issue? Uh, because this has been an issue that has particularly resonated with the American public right now, particularly in the COVID uh, crisis during the COVID pandemic, because of, of the fact that this is a pandemic perceived as coming from China. Um, and so then... That being the case, I think that it's a question, will he actually follow through with his policy going forward? And so it really does depend, I think. Um, Biden probably will reverse some of Trump's actions in terms of uh, global politics, such as seeking to rejoin the WHO, or perhaps seeking to rejoin the TPP uh, to pursue a kind of more multilateral approach to containing China Mm -hmm. um, versus this kind of unilateral approach that Trump has taken. Um, but then it's still then it's still a question, will he be as strong? And so some people phrase that there has been some editorials claiming that Biden will be less rhetorically strong on China, but he will actually do more. And that's been argued with both Taiwan and Hong Kong. We don't know, though. We hope so, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a question. I think it's so, still an open verdict. So, well, China has been increasing its military activity um, mm. the past couple of months, you know, in anger towards the U.S., you know, Mm. sending top officials here. So how do you think that will affect U.S. policy, this increased military threat Mm. um, from China? 
How do you think that um, Biden will deal with that? It's a good question. I think that uh, the response to date has been tit for tat escalation, more or less, just that whenever China does something, America does something similar. <clears throat> and so that can be actually a dangerous region because it does escalate the stakes. Um, but I think also then there will be more of this, this the kind of tit for tat escalation. But the question now is I think China is conducting drills around Taiwan with such frequency is not just for the sake of intimidating Taiwan, it's also for the sake of training. Um, and that's particularly dangerous, I think, regionally. That, you know, actually allowing Chinese troops uh, in the Navy or in the Air Force to have training could be in preparation for actions elsewhere. And I think there, there probably will have to be a, a more concrete measure to address this, but it's still to be seen what that will be. And I think that's what's currently lacking from an incoming Biden administration. So there's been talk of um, Secretary Defense pick um, being Michelle Flournoy, who's quite hawkish. I mean, she had mentioned that she wants, you know, enough presence in the South China Sea to be able to wipe out China's Navy in three days. Mm-hmm. So what do you think of the possibility of her becoming Secretary of Defense? It would be interesting because uh, it's a question just looking at Biden's administration. People are now pondering the question, will these be hawks or are these people that are more in favor of engagement with China? Because there have been Democrats that are more in favor of engagement. And there's also the view that engagement has failed. And this debate, I think it still continues among China experts, among think tank workers, among people working in government who have ties to government. Uh, and it's not settled. And so I think that whoever Biden picks for key positions within his cabinet on a foreign policy will then reflect this. Will they be hawks or will they be doves or and so forth? Um, and I think then that what's interesting is particularly there was concern about Biden being stronger on China on the trade war or on IP or on technology and not actually talking hard geopolitics regarding the South China Seas or Taiwan or the uh, island chains. And so I think that will perhaps that will change. I think that's that's also one of the things we really have to see once he takes power. So as a political observer. Do you think there's cause for anxiety in Taiwan over Biden? I think there's always cause for anxiety about any American president. If it was Trump, (laughs) if it was Biden, I think there would be cause for concern either way. Well, thanks so much, Brian, for coming on our show. Thank you. And I've been speaking with Brian Hugh. He is a founding editor at New Bloom Magazine, a political magazine in Taiwan. Overseas Community Affairs Council is encouraging overseas journalists to report on the contributions Taiwanese have made to the world so that the world can see Taiwan. The OCAC is launching the Chinese Language Journalism Award for Overseas Media. Journalists can compete for two awards, the Print and Digital Report Award and the Broadcast Report Award. Entries that showcase in-depth professional reporting have the chance to win $2,500 U.S. dollars. The deadline is November 30th. Go to www.ocac.gov.tw for details. Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination... 1929. For generations of Taiwanese people, the book A New English Grammar by Ke Qi Hua was a trusty sidekick. 
there had never been anything like it in Taiwan before. A systematic, no-nonsense guide to the English language that demystified its inner workings so that even schoolchildren could make sense of them. Its revised editions and sequels went on to be bestsellers too, and through the whole middle of the 20th century, Ke Qihua's English textbooks were the preferred option for Taiwanese students looking to master the language. After so many decades of use, these books have achieved an iconic stature as something everyone over a certain age will remember. But their author, Ke Qihua, is himself an icon, and for far more than his role as Taiwan's great English teacher. A political prisoner, novelist, and sharp-witted poet, Ke suffered intensely under Taiwan's 20th century dictatorship, and yet he never shrank from firing back at it. Ke passed away in 2002, but his story isn't his alone. His wife, Tsai Ali, was at the center of it all. Together, they started a publishing house and a family, and during Ke's years of imprisonment, it was her who ran the business, raised the family, and fed Taiwan's insatiable demand for Ke's books. Now 86, she remembers everything clearly. Earlier this month, I had the privilege of visiting her family's home to sit down and listen to her share her memories. As we sit down at a large kitchen table, she pulls out a plastic folder full of her handwritten notes. And so we begin. Ke Qihua was born in the southern city of Kaohsiung in 1929, into a Taiwan that had been under Japanese colonial rule for several decades. Since she only met him later in life, what she knows about his early years comes either from what he told her or what childhood friends of his have said. What everyone seems to agree on is that Ke had a knack for languages. Under Japanese rule, children had to attend schools where the lessons were taught in Japanese, a foreign language to most people. Where others struggled, though, Ke mastered Japanese, and later even wrote books in the language. When he began middle school, he was introduced to English, and he took on the new language with relish. His classmates remember his outstanding test scores, as well as one time when he made vocabulary flashcards for the entire class. It was an early sign of things to come. Some of Ke Qihua's actual first encounters with English speakers, though, nearly killed him. During World War II, he was drafted, along with many other young men, into a work corps, tasked with digging trenches and performing other hard labor for the Japanese military. American warplanes targeted the areas where they worked, and one day, one of these planes attacked Ke's group, killing several groupmates who had been in front of him just seconds before. Despite this near-miss, Ke later had many American friends. His true anger, Ms. Tai says, was directed instead at the nationalist Republic of China government that took control of Taiwan after the war, when Japanese rule ended. It didn't take long for friction to build between local people and the troops and officials sent over by the new government. In 1947, growing resentment exploded into violence in what is now called the 228 incident. Government forces responded to unrest with a rampage through much of the island. 
到那个市议会附近，高雄市议会附近，看到很多很多人被杀死了，无辜的百姓。柯启华 ，then a student studying English, witnessed some of the killings firsthand. When the massacres stopped, paranoia and suspicion took over. The government was not only spooked by Taiwanese anger, it was also losing a fight against Chinese communists. By 1949, it was forced to abandon the mainland entirely, leaving only Taiwan and a few smaller islands under its control. Communists were thought to have infiltrated Taiwan, and their agents might be anywhere. There were no rules. Suspects were taken and interrogated, sometimes seemingly at random, and they were made to denounce others. While this was in large part a witch hunt, Ms. Tai says that amid the hysteria, there were actual communist agents about. They had a student who was a One of them, who was posing as a student at the time, was caught. Under interrogation, this agent denounced the school's entire faculty, including an old friend and former classmate of Ke Qihua. The year was 1951, and by this point, Ke had graduated university and become an English teacher. Ke Qihua's friend called him in as a witness of good character, something needed for his release. The whole business of being a witness seems to have been a ruse designed to net more suspected subversives. Ke would not confess to anything, and no charges would stick. But while Ke was eventually declared not guilty, he was sentenced to re-education. That meant a year and eight months on Green Island. Green Island, off Taiwan's southeast coast, is perhaps still best known today for its past as a penal colony. 对啊，那个时候都会介绍介绍来介绍去的，他他自己觉得很好啊，科技化这个人。It was only after he was released and returned to teaching that Ms. Tai first met him. She says that setting them up was the idea of one of her friends. She says her friend gushed about Ke Qihua all day long, and so finally she agreed to meet him. The two hit it off. In the 1950s, when they first met, there were few restaurants or cafes for dates. She says, so from the first, he would simply call at her house. Her father liked the young man, and when Miss Tai announced that they planned to marry, he had no objections. Ke had been sent to Green Island, but through no fault of his own. This was no criminal. Miss Tai's mother, on the other hand, refused to speak to her for an entire week after she announced her engagement. Her mother sensed that trouble would follow the union. Not long after the marriage. One of Ke's good friends was being held as a debtor and needed money and a guarantor to bail him out. Without the means to pay, Ke decided to open a cram school for students looking to get ahead academically. After a long day at his teaching job, he would go to his own school and continue to teach English late into the evening. 开补习班啊，人满哦，真的哦。At the time. There weren't many schools like this in the area, and the classes were hit. There were so few openings that Ke took to preparing class notes to sell to those who couldn't get a place in his classes. This work regularly kept him up past midnight, but those lecture notes were hot items.
Miss Tai suggested putting these notes into a book, and eventually he did. The young couple didn't know what they were doing, though, and the publisher who agreed to help them ended up violating their contract. Angry at being cheated, Ka decided to quit his job, shut down the school, and open a publishing house of his own. There, he could print his own works on his own terms. The decision may seem a bit impulsive, but it was the right move. Once word got out about the book, his company was swamped with orders. Today, Ms. Tai says, the internet makes the kind of information in the book easily available to everyone. But in the early 1960s, as Ka's book flew off the shelves, there was nothing else in Taiwan quite like it. Comprehensive, clear, and concise. Postmen would show up at all kinds of odd hours with big new orders. The young family was overjoyed, and Ms. Tai says they had many plans for the future. As we'll hear next week, though, a few words to the authorities from another of Ka's acquaintances was all it took to destroy this happy life. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. This is Highlights, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. One of the longest U.S. presidential elections in history has finally wrapped up. And how has the world responded? Well, it's been pretty mixed because Trump is disputing the election. That's right. So far, a lot of U.S. allies have sent congratulatory messages. Also, India, Turkey, Saudi Arabia... But some other major countries are still waiting. China and Mexico, which Trump has been hostile to, but also leaders that Trump has been closer to, like uh, leaders from Brazil, North Korea, and Russia. So what about Taiwan? Well, Taiwan is in the yes column. Very early on, President Tsai sent out a tweet congratulating him. It was a retweet of his congratulations to her when she won her election in January of this year. Now, half an hour later, the main opposition, Guomindang or KMT, they also tweeted their congratulations to Biden. American people once again show the world how to make democracy work. I'm not so sure about that, right? I mean, not this time around. It doesn't seem to be going too well. So do you think they're being sarcastic? I kind of feel like they are, but... A little bit of a jab. I don't know. Yeah, hard to say. <laughs> now, what else is interesting is that the local media has also been a little bit anxious about a Biden win. A storm media column refers to Taiwan as an anxious 51st state. From the Liberty Times, which is a pro-ruling party newspaper, netizens worry Biden will be China-friendly. But the MAC chairman says give him the benefit of the doubt. And from the more pro-opposition China Times, will a Biden win be terrible for Taiwan? So something else that's very interesting is that a lot of the green-leaning TV news stations have been talking about these election conspiracy theories about, you know, election fraud, things like that, which is very different from what the DPP administration is, is what their take is. That is interesting. I think they might want Trump to win. Yeah. Maybe they're afraid of Biden or they're insecure they about like Trump Biden. Because he's very pro, it seems to be very anti-China, right? And they right. perceive that as being pro-Taiwan. 
RTI. Exercise for your mind. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw. Our 60-minute English program can be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6185 kHz. In South Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan. You can also email us at rti at rti.org.tw.